Imagine you've got to build a network that delivers data no matter what because the mission is critical. Lives are at stake. However, the constraints are enormous. All you've got to work with are satellite links with high latency and low throughput and no terrestrial infrastructure unless you provide it yourself and the very highest imaginable security requirements and a limited budget. This is normal for the military. And here to chat with us about networking in this highly specialized environment is PC Drew. PC, welcome to Packet Pushers. And if you would, tell us a bit about yourself. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so my background is both on the commercial and military side. I've worked uh, for large ISP as a voice and internet engineer. I've worked assist administration, those kinds of things commercially. And then in the back, in the military, uh, I've worked for about 14 years uh, architecting, designing, operating networks and systems uh, in a whole bunch of areas around the globe. Man, you have seen some stuff then. There's going to be scars, battle stories to be shared, both figurative and literal. All right. Now, okay, so PC, you you approached us with, with an email just kind of curious about why we've never talked about military networks, and little did you know you were raising your hand to uh, to volunteer to be a guest on the show. <laughs> and this goes back to this show we did, this Future of Networking show we did with Peter Wallers on the Future of Networking there. It, it was a, a bit of a look back at some evolution during that show, uh, as well as a look forward to the future. We talked about QoS, SDN, and so on. And some of that conversation had you both agreeing and disagreeing with us and prompted your email to us. Uh, would you just kind of set that up for us, explain your perspectives? Sure. Well, that was a great episode, and, and I really enjoyed both the, the look back and the look forward. Uh, I started in this industry kind of in the 1997, 1998 timeframes where um, things were looking back to older generations and then moving into Ethernet and, and all these other things that were, were becoming big uh, in that timeframe. So uh, it's always fun to, to look back. Um, one of the topics was Snowflake Networks. And, you know, it really got me thinking about the various networks that I've seen in, in my career. And one of the distinctions that I thought was important was there's definitely unique configurations and there's a difference between unique requirements and constraints. And then there's a difference between all of that and unique networks. And oftentimes a snowflake network is is actually a sign that it's misconfigured so for example one of the one of the things was brought up that there was a subnet of like a slash 24 uh in one location and then a slash 26 was taken out of that slash 24 and put over in, a, in another location in general when you run across things like that it's not because that's a unique requirement that it had to be that way it's it's more like a misconfiguration uh so i think if you were to reduce the the number of misconfigurations in a network, you'd probably reduce the number of snowflake networks out there. Is that something you'd agree with? I think it goes back in part to the issue of standardization, where a lot of times there are not specific enough guidelines of how to build a network. And so people kind of wing it. And so you end up with folks with varying levels of experience and they maybe screw up along the way and you end up with this technical debt as a result. So you could you characterize them as misconfigurations? Uh, that could be a harsh judgment because of the lack of standardized approaches within the networking community. But in principle, yeah, I get what you're saying because there are things that with experience you'd never do once you've had that background and that experience. Yeah, definitely. That that topic of uh, lack of experience or or not as much experience as you'd like to have in an organization is definitely something that that we'll hit on a lot because that's a problem that we see in the military in general. Um, 
you have someone that that maybe has a year of experience that's operating a, a a complex network, and you're expecting them in the middle of the night to make good decisions that you would make with 20 years of experience. And and it's really difficult when you mm. add on top of that these complexities and these unique configurations or misconfigurations. Mm. Another thing that you had picked up on was uh, the discussion of QoS. I. I I record a lot of stuff and I don't remember all the details of that, but I do kind of remember kind of holding my head in my hands because the argument seemed to be, you know, QoS is valueless and you just get a bigger pipe and all of that. And and yet I know uh, that there is a place in the world for QoS because of a variety of constraints. And I guess you feel that way as well. Definitely. I, I do believe, I think uh, Greg had said that QoS is the devil's work. Uh, <laughs> And I do agree with that. It it is difficult um, when you get down to the nitty gritty. It's it's really difficult. But with the, with the right framework in place across a, a standardized network, it can it can seem less difficult. Um, but unfortunately, not everybody can just buy a bigger pipe. In in the military, we're we're often limited to our equipment set, to a, a radio frequency bandwidth range, um, or just existing infrastructure that we need to make some immediate changes on. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that in just a minute. But uh, if, if I already have a, a you know, 100 meg ethernet pipe and something happens immediately like a DDoS attack or some other event that you can't control, you don't have time to bring in another circuit to get a bigger pipe. You need QoS to be able to, to take charge and make the right decisions or that, that network to make the right decisions about what priority traffic should be allowed through or should be concentrated so that the, the people can still keep working on it. Mm. Um, an example of that, that, that happened to me, um, we were living in Okinawa, Japan, and I'd been there for about five years and a, the tsunami hit Japan. This was a couple of years ago. Um, the tsunami hit Japan and immediately we had to get a lot of information about, uh, who was, still alive, what, what our capabilities were, all of that kind of stuff. Some of it was classified, some of it was unclassified, and some of it was intended for a, a commercial audience, uh, general public, Facebook messages, things like that. And our circuits became saturated in addition to a number of the circuits uh, having to be rerouted because they'd gone down due, the, due to the tsunami. And we had to prioritize Facebook traffic for certain users who were getting the message out about our, our status over Facebook we had to prioritize that traffic over other people's traffic in order to get it through, even though we had a pretty large pipe coming out. And so that was just an example of something that happens immediately. We've got to take an immediate response. We can't order another circuit, you know, to, yeah. to magically be dropped, uh, dropped down from the air in 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, another thing you would observe was uh, overlay networks, which are so commonly talked about in networking these days, because many of the fancy solutions are built around the presumption of there's an overlay here, there's an underlay, and then there's an overlay network where the interesting, more complex bits happen related to policy. But yet that does add complexity. Uh, and you, you kind of blanched at that um, ubiquity of overlay networks. Definitely. Uh, on, on the commercial side, if you, if you work at an ISP, you, you know, your life is, is operating an underlay network with, with overlays on top of it, um, you know, and you're facilitating that. And so you, that's, your, that's your normal state of business. If you are getting services from another provider, oftentimes you don't see any of that. And so you think you have your own network and it feels like you have your own network. 
in the military, we often uh, operate both sides of that. And especially when you layer uh, cryptographically isolated networks on top of each other. So if you kind of in general think a top secret network could be encrypted and run as a, a IPsec VPN on top of a lower level of classification in order to save on infrastructure hardware and things like that. That's oftentimes how it can happen. That's so, an overlay. Just just to Go disambiguate ahead. there. So you say you know encrypted networks on top of each other. Does that mean nesting of encapsulations where you've got an encrypted packet that's in, uh, buried in another encrypted packet? Or do you mean and uh, multiple encrypted networks running in parallel with one another across the same underlay. We actually use both paradigms. Um, depending on the situation and depending on, on who's running the network, uh, you may have one encrypted network on top of another encrypted network, which is then on top of uh, another network that is kind of your bare metal or, or non-encrypted network. Um, and you also may have a transport network that is carrying multiple uh, equivalent encrypted networks around. But conceptually speaking, they're all overlay networks, whether it's a, a GRE tunnel uh, in order to support you know, you know uh, adjacent routing adjacencies, or whether it's a IPsec VPN type encrypted network in order to protect the, protect the confidentiality of specific data traveling. It's still an overlay network, and you end up having all the issues like path MTU, um, you know, and oftentimes in an encrypted network, when you know that you're riding on top of something else and you know that all of the packets are going to be encapsulated, you almost have to drop all the clients and servers down to maybe a 1400 byte MTU size or, or maybe even smaller because that's the constant state of the network. That's not a, an ad hoc you know, a, a problem with the network. That might just be because you're doing all this encapsulation, we have to do it this way. Then, of course, you run into maximum segment size and TCP windowing and kind of how do all of these components all play together when you have multiple overlays with MTU settings that are custom or have to adapt. Your argument being that just throwing yet another overlay into the mix when you've already got a bunch of uh, over IPsec VPNs to be dealing with, it's it, it's not as simple as that. It's, uh, it, it is complexity on top of complexity that maybe you don't want to have to deal with. Definitely. And then ultimately the answer that you have to, to face is at, at midnight when something goes down, you get an alarm or you get a call saying that this issue is happening. How do you know where your packets are actually routing to when you have multiple stacks of overlays on top of each other? So if you have a GRE tunnel inside of a IPsec VPN inside of another IPsec VPN, you've now lost visibility in exactly where your packets are traveling and so in order to diagnose that, it's a tremendous amount of manual uh, investigation to interrogate each router along the way, each route table. Why is it taking this path? Okay, now go down to this underlay network and then go down you know, one step further. And that requires a tremendous amount of skill and experience in order to visualize all of those layers and the various routes. So I, I tell my my folks as we architect networks to the extent that we can avoid tunnels. Uh, we need to build things where the adjacencies are are native. We're not tunneling over another network unless we absolutely have to. And there are certain cases where we do, but let's not try and just add tunnels because tunnels are fun. 
uh, they, they increase complexity significantly, especially for inexperienced operators. Well, and that, that correlates with the keep it simple, stupid principle, as well as networks need to be as complex as they need to be, but no more. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was kind of another topic in that same uh, episode was the commoditization of network skills. Uh, and, and I think network skills are really difficult to come by, whether you're in the, in the public or private sector, commercial, military, it doesn't matter. We all kind of face similar problems where the person that I'm hiring to be on shift at two o'clock in the morning probably does not have 20 years of experience. And so we have to design, architect, document, and operate, which includes tooling, the operations tooling, a network that that person, whoever we put in that role, can make the best decisions that are in line with what we would want them to do without having to call us in the middle of the night. Right. Uh, <laughs> in other words, making a network that's supportable and the more complex you make it, Sure, the uh, the nerd knob twisters can probably sort it all out and, and maybe have even worked on it, but then you've got other people, so many other people, especially if it's a large network, needing to support it. There's a balance to be found there where if if you can keep it simpler, it's more likely that those people are going to be able to resolve the problem on their own. Exactly. All right, PC, so we've got a, um, a good background on your... Well, your perspective on things, you've seen a lot, you've, uh, you've done a lot, you've worked with some of the unique requirements of military networks that prompted your thoughts on that show we did with uh, Peter Wallers. So let's dig into this a little more. Now, military networks, as, as you've described them to me, and as I understand from a few people that I, I know who've worked in the military, they're really specialized. Can you describe some of the common constraints that you run into doing network architecture and design for the military? Definitely. So the way I like to kind of describe this is if if you were walking with your boss into the middle of a, a field, like a soccer field or something, and your boss turns to you and says, I want everything that's on my desk in my office right here in two or three hours. That's kind of the, the gist of, of what we're told and how it feels when we go set up a network. We have to bring everything with us. We have to bring power. We have to bring all the cables. We have to bring all the equipment all of that kind of stuff. And oftentimes we're moving from one point to another. So we're only set up in, in a place for a certain number of hours, which means we have to set up and tear down. Everything has to be mobile. It all has to be uh, flexible enough so that we can deliver those services on almost a moment's notice wherever we are in the world. Now, um, now again, you said including power. That means you've got to have some significant power generation uh, of your own. Correct. So uh, we don't necessarily, as communications personnel, we don't necessarily operate the power equipment, the power generation equipment, but we're very, very tied in with the engineers that do the power analysis, the requirements that define uh, where the generators are going to go, how it's going to be distributed. So they're kind of hand in hand with us in terms of power planning. And then there are cases where we put, set up specific generators for a specific set of equipment to have a specific uh, level of quality uh, for those power generators. And then, of course, you end up getting into refuel requirements and, and that kind of stuff. So the logistics, logistics aspect of the whole process is incredibly important. I'm imagining, therefore, that it's got to be a very predictable and replicable process where you're rolling into a site and like Lego bricks, everything snaps together in a predictable and orderly fashion. <laughs> that, that's definitely the hope. Uh, and so when, 
when we we do a lot of exercises and that's essentially what an exercise is. It's practicing what we would do in the event that we needed to go uh, in real life to a combat zone or to a humanitarian assistance disaster relief mission or something in real life in real time. So we spend a lot of time, usually multiple times a month or at least every month where we would go out to a location, we'd bring all those Lego pieces out, uh, we'd set it all up, we determine what worked and what didn't work and redo that, redo that, redo that over and over and over again to build the muscle memory. So in that sense, once you've gotten to that point, there's not generally a lot of flexibility in terms of, well, should I put a router here? Should I put a switch here? Should I do this? By that point in time, you probably have already defined the entire network and what it's supposed to look like. And then you're just operating as quickly as possible to get it up and running. Later, you may go back and re-architect it, or you may add new capabilities or things like that. But there's definitely a moment where you've made your plan, and now you're just very, very quickly executing that plan. Uh, sometimes we're not given a lot of requirements. Sometimes it's, hey, give me everything you've got right here. Other times it's very nuanced requirements of, I need to be able to use this application, which, which requires a tremendous amount of bandwidth, or it requires this, this, and this, and you're going to need to partner with another unit that delivers that, that application or that service. And so we get some of those specific requirements that we can then build into our plan. Uh, so, okay, this is actually really interesting because I, I guess I would have assumed that if you're a mobile operations, you're rolling into a site, you're standing up a network that you stood up a hundred times before, and it's pretty much the same network and delivery infrastructure. But in fact, it's not depending on the scenario you're running support for, you may have to have more or less on the on the fly design and architecture requirements that impact the ultimate network you're delivering. That's correct. And unfortunately, you don't get the advantage of being able to go acquire equipment and software in real time. So given all the constraints that you just identified, you then have to say, what do I have with me that can deliver this? Or who do I know that I could borrow this from? You can't just necessarily say, here's a credit card, go buy this piece of equipment. You have, in other words, the part of the Lego bricks or part of your constraint set, I guess, is you've got hardware and network operating system software running on that hardware. No matter what is being asked of you to deliver, you've got this hardware and software that you're bringing with you that somehow or another has got to deliver that solution. <laughs> exactly. Jeez. It doesn't sound like fun, does it? Well, uh, so in, in most Greenfield projects that I've dealt with, part of the project build is, okay, what, what are the business requirements? What are we trying to do here? And what are the SLAs around that? And then you identify what the hardware and software combinations are that are going to deliver that. You design it, and then you build it, and then you deliver it. And it usually takes, at the very least, weeks, which would be a super fast project, right? Because you've done the commercial side too. And, and then often months or even years, depending on the scope of the project, as opposed to rolling in and delivering it with what you got. <laughs> exactly. So uh, to put that kind of into an example, um, a couple of years ago, there was a cyclone that hit Bangladesh and killed a, a large number of people. And uh, I was in Okinawa and was called on a Saturday night uh, and said, you're going to go to Bangladesh tomorrow, meaning that next, that Sunday, and pack for a couple of months grab all your stuff. Uh, tomorrow morning, we're going to start planning this. So 
uh, the next morning I woke up, I went in, started planning it. We started to get a little bit of an understanding of what we were going to be asked to do from a mission perspective. And that was to coordinate all of the flights into and out of the area, military flights into and out of the country for all the helicopters and fixed wing aircraft that we had available to us, coordinate that along with the State Department so that we could deliver food and water to the people of Bangladesh in the areas that they can't reach, their government can't reach. So that was kind of the broad mission set. And my role in that was to be able to communicate with all of the aviation planners wherever they were in the country so that every day we could give them their new tasks of deliver this amount of food and water to this place and that place and so on and so forth. So I had to pack up all of the things that I thought I would need to be able to establish that radio network or that commercial data network. And I had to do initial preliminary coordination with the State Department to figure out what they had at their embassy that we could use, piggyback off of, all, all that kind of stuff. Plus, we had limitations of what the country, the host nation, would allow us to bring into the country. So I packed up as much as I could, figured out a loose plan, and then the next day we flew there, and all I had with me was the equipment that I brought. So I couldn't, I couldn't dynamically change the things that I could offer, the services I could offer, because all I had was the equipment I had with me. But I knew the equipment that I had, and I knew the capabilities that it provided, so I knew at least I could make X, Y, and Z happen whatever that was. And maybe with a little bit of flexibility, I could make something else happen. You mentioned having to roll into uh, Bangladesh. Uh, and I'm imagining if it's a humanitarian effort, other uh, basically disaster areas where it could be a country that doesn't have a lot of infrastructure. It could be a country of whatever natural geography and whatever natural weather patterns, or maybe it's a desert uh, that you're rolling into. How do you cope with that? We're used to our, in a commercial world, our tidy data centers where we create the environment that all this equipment's going to run in. Do you have to run this stuff like outdoors or you must provide your own self-contained racks or something to put equipment in? How does that work? So we we definitely do. And it's, it, it's interesting. Uh, I worked at level three communications for a while. And one of the things I remember was working in a in a pseudo clean room environment where you have to have the bunny suit on and, and all that kind of stuff, because everybody's so focused on cleanliness and microscopic particles and all this stuff. And then I move into the Marine Corps side of things and there's dust and sand and water everywhere. And you have to do as much as possible to prevent that from getting into the equipment with the knowledge that it's going to get into the equipment. So we generally have all of our equipment uh, packed up in transit cases, which are just hardened shells that have kind of uh, special access doors where you could access the front of a router or the back of a router as necessary. Oh, uh, but not, not just for transport. You mean it actually runs it in this thing? In oh, okay. Okay. I, yep. I was imagining like a Pelican case kind of a thing, but this sounds more than that. So the, a lot of the equipment is in Pelican-like cases, but they have racks inside them. So instead of lifting a lid open where you could look down inside, you have uh, essentially uh, lids that take you take off the front and the back. Uh, it's still waterproof and all that kind of stuff when it's 
when it's stored for transport. But as soon as you've opened those those lids and taken it out, now you essentially have a mobile rack. Hmm. And maybe it's a it's a two U rack or a four U rack or even larger, depending on the type of equipment. Uh, but it is no longer waterproof and it's no longer dustproof once you take those lids off. So we usually have to schedule outages in certain areas to do what we call preventative maintenance or PMing a piece of equipment, which would involve turning that router off, uh, taking it out of the case, blowing out the fan, cleaning it out, all of that kind of stuff. In in some areas, we even put uh, filters over the ends of the cases, and but filters is a fancy term. Uh, nylon stockings would be the more appropriate term. Uh, because it does a really good job of keeping the small sand particles and things like that out. So get a bunch of that, throw it over the the transit case uh, end caps, and you can do a, a lot more protection from sand. Water is the enemy. Uh, there's a lot of times where you have transit cases that end up sitting in puddles of water, uh, which, as you can imagine, is is not good. <laughs> not good. Uh, <laughs> nope. Not good. <laughs> Uh, extreme heat and extreme cold. So I, I've been, I've operated in both environments uh, in Korea in the wintertime. It's one of the coldest places I've ever been. And you, you constantly have to provide heat into a tent environment. You can't put equipment outside for very long because it will it will freeze and it'll cease to operate. Now, is that just like the, the you know, the environmental controls, like, like a fan, would that kind of freeze up and no longer spin that sort of thing or is it just the whole the whole board the thing just doesn't conduct electricity like you'd expect and starts flaking out on you when it gets cold enough depending on the temperature any or all of the above hmm. i know uh, there's an operating all... range that a lot of equipment has usually it's ships with what 40 degrees fahrenheit to 100 140 fahrenheit maybe roughly something like that sure so you end up saying okay this is my this is my commercial off the shelf you know router it has no additional protection, and now I'm going to put it inside of a transit case. That's kind of your standard uh, standard model, and then you end up having to deal with the effects of, of extreme heat and extreme cold. There's other pieces of equipment like radios that are specifically designed with military specifications to operate in those broader environments, but those are no longer commercial off-the-shelf pieces of equipment. So there's definitely a balance. If I want to buy a Cisco router that most of my personnel would be able to operate after being trained on it, I have to take on this risk of it cannot operate as well in extreme temperatures or extreme environments. If I go through the military design process and say, I have to have something that is mil-spec or uh, IP47 uh, or IPX7, you know, different levels of of water and heat protection. Um, that's going to be a much more expensive piece of equipment, and it's going to be a lot more custom. And the people that I have to operate it are going to be less likely to know it out of the box how to operate it. They're going to have to be trained on every component of it. <laughs> well, and then there's the the issue of power. You we mentioned earlier the mobile power. How good is the quality of the power that you're getting? Not great. Uh, it's it's definitely uh, unreliable. And so when you look at operating a network, you end up thinking these things will go down. Uh, the refuel truck will fail to get to the generator. And so we're going to have to siphon fuel out of one generator and put it into another generator in order to conserve fuel, which means I might lose 
a certain piece of equipment. Or if I get power spikes and I'm not using a UPS to, to protect that uh, piece of equipment, that especially a commercial piece of equipment, as well as provide battery backup, then I'm not able to survive that power outage, whether it's momentary or whether it's you know six hours. Um, extreme weather really impacts power generation and distribution as well. Uh, I was in Afghanistan in the summertime one year, and the temperatures exceeded 130 degrees outside. And we had power distribution panels that were rated to 120 degrees. There are commercial power distribution panels in this environment. And so we had to build specific huts for the power distribution panels to be out of the direct sunlight because the temperatures were exceeding the capacity or the specifications of the power distribution panel. And so that led to unstable power. Uh, if, if you have an AC that goes bad, uh, an air conditioning unit that goes bad and it's blowing cold air into an environment, the AC goes bad. Now all your equipment starts to heat up and suddenly you've got a quote unquote data center that's operating at a temperature of 110 degrees and you have to start reducing that load, turning that off, uh, opening doors, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then that introduces more extreme weather into that environment. So it's a constant battle of survivability against the elements. Uh, okay, survivability. So, but and we're talking about the elements. Uh, those of us that are used to our cushy data centers are, um, you know, are wincing just trying to imagine life in this world where the harshest thing we have to deal with is that unair conditioned closet that's a little <laughs> dusty. You know. All right. right. Well, but then if you're uh, deploying a military network, I mean, cyber warfare is well known. It's going on all the time. There are state actors that are constantly attacking uh, various networks for their reasons. I I'm assuming you must be an immediate target. Is that fair? Uh, absolutely. And and definitely before you can become that that target, you have to get there first. So you have to bring all your equipment. So that nice, tidy data center with uh, DC power that's laced to the rack and you've got all your pretty cat five cables all, all kind of grouped together in, in one, one area and it's routed pretty and all that kind of stuff. Now move it, yeah, pick it up right. and, and put it on a ship and move it across the world and pull it out and then use it. Uh, so that's definitely a huge concern. How do I get everything there safely so that it doesn't break? And then once it's there, how do I protect it both from physical security as well as cybersecurity? And a lot of people, when they go into a data center, especially some of the fancy carrier hotels and and uh, exchanges and stuff, you've got all the keypads and multiple badges and airlocks and all this kind of stuff. You don't have an airlock or a you know multiple keypads worth of entry in in the mountains of Af Afghanistan when you're on the move. You have things like concertina wire. You have physical barriers that you can set up. Um, but you're still running cable on the ground in, you know, across a, a population center. So from one tent to another, from one building to another, you're not necessarily digging ditches unless you're going to be there for an extended period of time. You're not trenching, running conduit, all that kind of stuff. So you literally wire across the surface of the ground between temporary housing tents and so on. Correct. Especially if it's a place that is uh, a very temporary location. And by temporary, I'd say a day or two. Uh, a more permanent location would be a couple of months uh, or even longer. Like in some of the infrastructure in Afghanistan, we were there for 10 or 15 years. 
And so that infrastructure, we did trench it, we did run conduit, things like that. But in places where you're there for a day or two or three or, or a month, you're not putting conduit in the ground. So you're running a, a fiber cable or an ethernet cable across the dirt. And when you talk about security standpoint, that can be tampered with. Someone can get into that that cable and either uh, observe what traffic is going across. They can cause interference. You know, any of those kinds of physical security concerns can happen. If you have a switch that is unsecured, you can plug in a, an Ethernet cable into one of the open ports and attempt to gain access to the network through that switch port. So physical security of the equipment and of the entire area, the data center, if you, if you will, or even the whole camp uh, is really important. Not, and that doesn't even include things like rocket attacks or direct fire attacks, someone shooting at you and trying to gain access to that environment. And then you get into the cybersecurity realm and you're definitely a target. You're definitely a target for non-state actors, for terrorists, for all that kind of stuff as a local entity, as well as as a national entity. So your presence in a specific town uh, might create, might make you a target for a cyber attack from another faction near that town or kind of local to you. But there's also those constant persistent threats from much larger entities trying to gain any access to the military network at all times. I'm assuming these are not internet connected or, or very limited internet connected networks. So there are some that are definitely internet connected on the unclassified side, uh, obviously. And we have a, essentially a large transit ISP that's operated by an organization called the Defense Information Systems Agency or DISA. And so they run our uh, internet access points, our bridges into the internet, and they do a lot of that first level of protection between uh, any type of attack or any type of uh, access trying to be gained from the internet into the military network. But then as you start to pull back from that ISP, if you will, and get into our how we operate our classified and unclassified networks and the vulnerabilities associated, there might be people trying to gain access through that open switchboard that I mentioned, uh, going back to the physical security piece. There might be somebody that's trying to eavesdrop on a radio link that is traversing enemy-held territory. So it's not just internet capabilities or internet attacks and, and internet-connected networks. It can be networks that bridge other networks. It can be networks that bridge host nation infrastructure uh, that is unsecured, or if you go into an environment where uh, the host country is, you know, has like a global firewall like China or some of those other places um, where they can try and attempt to conduct man-in-the-middle attacks on uh, any kind of traffic going across there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's it, it, the scenario here, there's so many elements of the environment you're working in both physical and uh, and the digital world that you do not control and and yet you're such an interesting target whatever this network is that you've set up and so the the difficulties mount it's not as if you're it, it just feels like it feels like the deck is stacked enormously against you and your resources are limited to try to make your environment as, as resilient as possible, uh, including as secure as possible to maintain that resiliency 
avoid data exfiltration uh, and so on. And I suppose the attacks could be different. I don't know if data exfiltration is even all that interesting as opposed to just disrupting operations. Yeah, definitely. You know, they're, they're different attack vectors. So exfiltration and, and gathering plans for a future operation is really important to some people. Disrupting an existing operation or or even just a, a DDoS attack to disrupt any operation that, that's going on uh, is, is really important as well. Um, attacking communication links, radio links is important because, for example, if you look at how we operate drones, uh, they're essentially receiving real-time updates from their command center that the drones are via radio links. So if you can disrupt, whether it's the GPS or the, or the radio instructions uh, to that drone, you can impact its ability to operate. And from an enemy perspective, that's great. If I can do, conduct a GPS attack on a, on a drone and make it think that it can't communicate and it, it can't trust what, uh, what its previous plan was, and then it crashes, I've, I've won. And I haven't had to actually physically attack the network. I haven't had to shoot any bullets. I haven't had to uh, conduct major cyber attacks against well-protected uh, in installations or infrastructure. I've taken a weakest link approach and said, okay, I can affect this operation in my area by doing X, Y, and Z. All right. Uh, here's another scenario for you. How, how, since you're in this difficult physical environment, I'm assuming you've got a higher than average failure rate of physical equipment. And yet it's not like you're going to call the TAC and go, hey, can you ship me out something? I just had a piece of equipment fail or whatever because of the scenario that you're in. Do you therefore pack a bunch of extra gear to, you know, oh, router just blew up and then you have another router on hand to to swap or do you rely on, you know, resilient power supplies and these sorts of things to kind of get you through? I'd say all the above. And this kind of goes into uh, another area of logistics uh, where the military is uh, unique in that we have to really consider the logistics, the entire logistics environment how we get there, what we have, so supply chain management, all of that kind of stuff, we have to be very interested in. I'll tell you, I'm not gonna go to an environment, an unknown environment without multiple spares uh, of, of at every level, whether that's power supplies, whether that's cards uh, and then full, full units. That being said, I'm also not gonna go into an environment without a deeper supply chain to reach back to. So the military as a whole does a really good job of having a very long supply chain pipeline where I, for any piece of equipment, can request uh, a repair and or a replacement. And that replacement unit, if, if necessary, might have to be flown somewhere, might have to be airdropped, uh, might have to be delivered by DHL or by military plane, kind of any anything you could imagine. So the concept of TAC shipping out a replacement router, that actually does exist. Hmm. It might not come to 10A in town B in Afghanistan, but it would come to a certain supply depot and then somebody would physically travel from that supply depot to 10A in town B in Afghanistan to deliver me that piece of equipment. I, I got it. So as you said, a deeper supply chain. So it's you know more or less the vendor delivers to the military. The military gets it to you, wherever you are globally. Right. Yeah. Ah, it's, well, it's interesting that that does exist on some level, but then there's the time 
uh, it, it, no matter what, it still takes time to get equipment shipped around the globe, I'm assuming. Uh, it, it definitely takes time. And when you run out of RGA45 tips and you need to do 100 more Ethernet cables and, and wireless is not a, is not a thing, uh, that, that's when you start getting into trouble and aircraft or convoys need to, to start moving to deliver some of those pieces of equipment from, from one point to another. So you don't want to run out of RJ45 tips. <laughs> so you know how... Or, or Cat5 cable. <laughs> the, you know how the large vendors tend to stock equipment in global depots. They've got, just depending on where their customer base is and who's working with them on their insurance programs, they've got global depots to distribute in a reasonable amount of time to get things to the people that need them in a timely fashion. Does the military also have that sort of a scenario where you're you're getting something out of some Asian depot if you happen to be located on that side of the world? It does, and that that looks very similar uh, to the commercial side. Um, the I think the unique part is how do you get it all the way to that end unit because that end unit could be in the middle of nowhere. Um, batteries is a is a really good example of special kinds of batteries for specific equipment is often something that needs to be uh, sent from one location to another. So that might involve a helicopter or multiple helicopters that are already going there. That might involve a special mission. That might involve putting people on the road uh, in, in trucks to get from point A to point B. And that can be a really tough decision because in some environments, if somebody needs a battery and they're, they're far away and the only way to get there is via truck, you're then putting 10 or 15 or 20 other lives at risk going through a contested environment to deliver something as innocuous as batteries. But that might be mission critical. And so someone high up the chain needs to make that value decision. Is it worth delivering that battery if I have to take the risk of 20 lives or 30 lives uh, to get it there? Is it that important? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. So, so the best answer, or, or certainly a, a really key element of this whole design, is the people that are on site, on location, have thought through exactly what they need to be self sufficient as much as possible. Exactly. And as part of that plan, when something breaks and they cannot be self sufficient, what is my what is my plan to get them the things that they need? How much can I prepare for that upfront so that I can know and anticipate and, and plan uh, for those actions and, and get kind of get all that straightened out before I deploy those forces out to that environment? All right. We haven't had a WAN conversation yet. We've talked a lot, a lot of logistics and other things that make your job uh, out there rather difficult and challenging but then there's this the from a networking design perspective just the practicality of what do you got to work with you don't you you need something now to interconnect sites what are your choices you don't ring up verizon and say hey i need a bunch of circuits and i'd like them oh i don't know today it doesn't work like that so what are your tools for wayne interconnectivity and and how do they work what are they actually giving you so I think the the way to visualize this is go back to that analogy that I started with of of you're in a field and you you were just told to deliver everything that is back at your office uh, right there in that field in in a few hours and so that field maybe maybe you put power there so you've got some access to power but you have no internet you have no network connection there there's no pedestal there that you can tap into 
to to get a circuit from. So the the one of the the areas that we can look is to satellite communications. And what that gives us from a kind of generic capability standpoint is really long distance communication. So I can be almost anywhere in the world and access a satellite with pretty decent visibility, uh, meaning the takeoff angle of the of the satellite dish will be able to hit the satellite uh, regardless of if there's a mountain or, or whatever kind of near me. Unfortunately, what that provides is a low bandwidth, high delay connection. So and, just now there's a few different kinds of satellites. You got low earth orbiting and uh, well, and in this context, uh, geostationary, assuming we're talking about a geostationary. Yeah, so we do we do have a, a lot of equipment that operates with the low earth orbit satellites. So something like Iridium that provides some very low bandwidth uh, capability for like first in uh, people. Uh, satellite phone, you can connect up uh, a laptop and get very limited bandwidth. Uh, but the geostationary is kind of where I'm focusing here. Um, and so geostationary essentially means when you hit a specific satellite, it's always going to be able to see you when you're in that specific location on the ground. If you move a very long distance to another part of the Earth, you won't be able to see that same satellite because its satellite footprint was over that other area that you were just operating. So you might have to transition to another satellite. Yeah, it, that geostationary satellite can see a particular disk of the Earth. It is literally looking at the same face of the Earth. It's not orbiting the Earth. It is in lockstep with the rotation of the Earth. So it's always got the same coverage footprint. Correct. Yeah. So as long as you're within that footprint, you're you're good. The, the trade-off being it's, I forget exactly how many miles... 30 or 40,000 some odd miles above the surface. So you've got uh, a longer distance for that light to travel, therefore it's substantially long delay. Exactly. So uh, my, my kind of planning factor for that high delay is, is between 500 and 800 milliseconds round trip time. Uh, and that's for every single packet. So when you think of a TCP handshake, just to get a TCP session started, unless you're using some other TCP optimization stuff, uh, you're talking 500 milliseconds for the SYN packet to go up and down and then travel across a wired network to wherever it needs to go. And then the act that the SYN act that comes back is going to be another 500 milliseconds. And then the final act is going to be another 500 milliseconds. I mean, I'm, I'm chuckling because most of us, if we were working on a network and did something as simple as a ping test just to get a sense of delay in the path, if it came back 500 to 800 milliseconds, we go, oh, something's broken. And in <laughs> fact, you're working with a circuit that, no, those, these are the natural characteristics of the path. This is normal. This is what I have to operate with. And therefore, your TCP three-way handshake, you just described one and a half to two seconds worth of handshake time. Just, just to set up the thing. socket. Exactly. And and that's the kind of like best condition. That's the best operating condition for that type of environment. Uh, now, when we talk about low bandwidth, so that's the high delay piece. The low bandwidth piece from a, from a just kind of generic planning factor, think under 10 megs. Um, there's some equipment that, that goes more than that. Most of the equipment is less than that. And, and a large quantity of the smaller equipment is much less than that. But if you if you look at it from a planning factor of 10 megabits per second, uh, oftentimes that's shared shared bandwidth uh, and high delay. It, it's, it's the opposite of what you want in a network. 
<laughs> you want high bandwidth, low delay. And this is the exact opposite as kind of a normal steady state. This is what you get. Okay. Uh, now, are you always using uh, SATCOM then as kind of a normal uh, path you've got? Because, you, again, you know it's always there? It it has become a, a very important part of the infrastructure. I think when you when you consider cyber and, and physical attacks to that infrastructure, whether it's interference uh, or Earth or space weather uh, and even orbits uh, and then getting into satellite malfunctions and things like that, you can't always rely on SATCOM. And so we have other options. Uh, we have terrestrial options. So when I say terrestrial radio options, I'm thinking microwave, uh, free space optics, or even radios. So if, you, if you're familiar with the ham radio kind of option, that type of thing on steroids. Uh, we have equipment that can bounce off the different layers of the troposphere uh, to go longer distance. But really, we're talking shorter distance uh, radio waves or in some cases like free space optics, optical waves that can provide higher bandwidth, lower delay, and don't require the SATCOM infrastructure. But the, you know, the catch being uh, distance, right? You can't... So for, say, you mentioned ham radio uh, options. So if you're down in the megahertz frequencies, you've just got a limited amount of data you can shove through that pipe, whereas you know, the higher you push the megahertz or you get into the gigahertz range, now you've got more you can... Uh, more data you can push through, but your distances become you know, severely limited the higher you go. So it becomes a use case specific scenario, depending on how far you need to communicate and how much data you're trying to push through that radio channel. And of course, you've got encryption overhead, I imagine. Uh, yeah, all, all the above. Uh, so distance is definitely one of the limiting factors. You, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the lower the frequency, the, the less bandwidth you're going to get out of it, but the longer you can go longer distance you can go. So for example, with a high frequency or HF radio, we might be able to have a voice communication halfway around the world with the right antenna and the right power, the right weather and the right time of day. And all of that is basic radio wave propagation theory kind of at its best. And then as soon as you get up into a very high frequency range, you're talking tens of miles of range, not hundreds or thousands of miles of range. You can add a little bit more bandwidth, but you're still really kind of looking at voice communication and very limited data. Uh, UHF and, and higher frequencies is where you start to get into the higher bandwidth types of things and SATCOM communications and, and all of that. Um, so distance is a huge limiting factor. And again, talking about the security piece, interference, direction finding, and weather are all big pieces. Direction finding is important because you're transmitting a radio signal that can be intercepted or eavesdropped on, but also triangulated to identify the source of that radio transmission. And then what do people want to do when they find a radio transmission? They want to shoot at it. So that's a very common way to disrupt uh, <laughs> disrupt an environment is shoot at the source of the radio wave. Meaning, the, meaning an antenna mounted on a tower, you know, physically destroy the thing? Physically destroy the thing. It might be mounted on a tower. It might be mounted on a vehicle. It might be mounted on somebody's back. But if I can destroy that radio, I can prevent it from doing its job and communicating, which means the people that are relying on that piece of equipment to communicate with someone else might no longer be able to communicate with those other people. 
and that might allow me to gain an advantage as a, as the enemy. Yeah, I, I guess geography can also be an issue here. I know I was involved with some wireless projects back in the day uh, for a government entity where it worked in the winter, didn't work so good in the summer when all the trees <laughs> leafed out. It, exactly. Or in the rain. Uh, there's some frequencies that, that work terribly in the rain. There's other frequencies that work really well at night but don't work well during the day. Uh, so when you get into really the, the, the deep technical uh, radio wave propagation, you know, is this a ground wave? Is this a sky wave? Is this a near vertical incident sky wave? Um, am I bouncing this off of another part of the atmosphere to then come back down? It's all really interesting stuff that you don't get a lot of exposure to when you're setting up a microwave backhaul on top of a hill for a you know 4G cellular antenna. Uh, you get a little bit of that, but it's a very different environment, a very dynamic environment when you're talking about any kind of radio communication uh, for a mobile uh, military unit. Yeah, the dynamic changing environment that you need to be able to work within versus that I am mounting this on this tower at this very specific height and this very specific frequency, and I've aimed it here, and I've got all the clearances, and by golly, it's logged, and everybody knows that this is here, all the everyone else, and we've all agreed that I can run this link, and it's here forever. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah, and then uh, kind of the, the last thing that, uh, you know, provides us with a lot of bandwidth is obviously the wired, the wired infrastructure. Um, you know, we're going to prefer a wired infrastructure in a, in a local environment, but oftentimes we don't get access to a wired infrastructure for a long haul network. There are some places where we've tried to pre-establish uh, long haul wired infrastructure for garrison communications often. So we'll have a lot of uh, a lot of long haul circuits uh, if we're going to be there for a while. But most every other circuit, especially in a dynamic environment, you're talking terrestrial or, or SATCOM. Okay, I want to go back to the the, the, the people question then, uh, because what you're describing to me, uh, I've had little exposure to various of these things, usually in a, in a commercial or much more controlled aspect, where you, you end up with a scenario of, oh yeah, that's the, the, the router that's got the radio interface in it that uplinks here, and here's the documentation and how it works, and it's kind of a one-off thing. Again, it's very controlled. You can maybe train someone on that. It's predictable. And if it's a little bit outside their experience, that's okay. Again, because of that controlled, constrained environment, you don't have that. It's dynamic. It's ever, ever changing. How do you deal with training people when the next time they're, they're on the ground and setting up the network, it could be different from the last time that they worked on that same or similar environment? That's a, it's a really tough problem. And I think the commercial side sees a lot of the same kinds of issues. But to, to start with, we, we haven't solved the problem well enough. We're continuing to try and figure out how to solve this problem. Uh, to kind of define the scope of the problem, um, in most cases, we get people right out of high school, sometimes with some college. We do some basic military training, which gives them the ability to operate in a, in a dynamic environment in general. And then we put on top of that, we layer on top of those skills, uh, how do you operate a network? How do you operate a radio? Or how do you operate a, a Windows or Unix system? Kind of in those three generic buckets. Uh, and then after that basic level of training in that environment, we send them to a unit where we have a variety of people at different 
levels in their career. So just like you would have in any commercial environment, IT department, where you've got the new guy that's been given, you know, maybe he has a certification, maybe she doesn't. Uh, maybe they have a, a background of working in this environment, maybe they don't. And then they have more senior people, more senior architects that they can kind of mentor. That similar thing is is definitely there. The hard part is we have competing priorities for people's time. So instead of what you would think of, okay, I can take this basically trained person on how to operate a router and a switch. Now I'm going to have them manage a garrison infrastructure or a permanent fixed infrastructure, see how to operate this network, have them do that for a couple of years. And then maybe we'll put them in this environment, give them some exposure to something a little bit different, all that. We end up having to send people to different places every three years. So someone might come to a unit, do networking stuff on routers and switches for two or three years, and then we would send them to go to recruiting, which is a totally different skill set where they go into high schools and they try and sell people on why they should join the Marine Corps or the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, or they work with college students of why they should join the military. And then they come back from recruiting after three years, and we expect them to be that, that person with six years of experience operating a network. But in reality, maybe they have two. <laughs> and then we, because they're more senior, because they're more advanced by the just time wise, we say now you should be able to plan this network and you should be able to incorporate all of these constraints and these requirements that, that we talked about earlier in the podcast. And you should be able to do that as though you have six years of experience doing this. And you're going to do that for a couple of years and maybe you get good at it. Maybe you're, you're doing a, a lot of, uh, self-learning and, and things like that to really advance your skills. And then we're going to send you to a, a military school for a year, which has nothing to do with network engineering. Uh, you learn how to be a better leader. You learn other skills, but that are not deeply technical. And so after 10 or 15 years or even 20 years in this career field, you've done a really wide variety of things, which has its own benefits but the one thing that you really haven't done is a deeply technical career path for full 20 years. Uh, when I worked at Level 3, I got introduced to a number of people who literally have done BGP for 20 years and, and write the specs for, for MPLS, you know, the, huh. the, the RFCs and things like that for, for advanced MPLS stuff. And those are people that have a tremendous depth of knowledge in one area that is almost impossible on the military side for us to, to, to gain and maintain the, someone with that skill set. So I, I kind of think of us as a collection of professional amateurs. We try and get as many people as much knowledge as possible so that they can do their best. But if we hang on to this hope that we're going to get somebody with 20 years of, of network engineering experience and, and kind of that deeply technical person, or that we're going to make that person, it's just not going to happen. So we have to figure out how do I take the people that that we have, which are usually incredibly dedicated and will spend as much time as, as you ask them to, uh, and get them spun up on this deeply technical, complex environment and have them make the best decisions, give them the best exposure. Okay. That's everyone's <laughs> challenge. 
it, it just seems more more <laughs> aggravated or egregious in, in the military environment because of what that environment is. So we've talked about a lot of constraints here. We've talked about sure. uh, survivability of equipment, you know, the, the mobile aspect, just rolling in and trying to get everything set up, um, the logistical challenges needing to be uh, self-sufficient as much as possible, the bandwidth challenges, just the practicality and difficulties of your WAN environment, what that's like, and then and then the people challenges. So, all right, given that context, here on Packet Pushers, we talk about the future a lot of times. We really talk about emerging tech and so on. Things like software-defined WAN have come up a lot, you know, these emerging technologies. And when you hear about that stuff and, and maybe some of the fancy data center techniques that go on and uh, software-defined networking more broadly with controllers and you know, magical software fairies that uh, configure your network for you, what, what goes through <laughs> someone like your, your mind when you hear about all of this emerging stuff? So I'd say the first thing that goes through my mind is how can I get the people that need to operate this, the people that work for me, how can I get them to understand the concept, understand how it works and know how to fix it when it breaks. And if I can't see a pathway through that somewhat quickly, then I'm kind of not interested. It may be a really good technology. It may be really important, but if I can't, get the people that operate it to have the experience and, and understand it in a way that, that within my constraints, then I'm kind of not interested. So if I can do that and I can get people to understand it when it breaks, the, the second question is, do I have the software and hardware to do this? A lot of times we're talking about new protocols instead of new hardware necessarily, which is kind of nice because I can look on my Cisco iOS version, whatever, or my Juno OS version, whatever, and say, does it support this capability? Um, you know, a, a topic that's come up a lot, and I know this is not new on the commercial side, but it's new in certain aspects of the military side is VRFs, virtual routing and forwarding instances. Uh, we've used VLANs uh, a lot. But moving into VRFs in smaller uh, military networks is, is relatively new the last couple of years. And that's something that already exists on my iOS or my JunoS or my, uh, my hardware platform. I don't have to buy anything new. So if I already have the software and hardware to do it and I can get people to, to understand it when it breaks, then is it actually solving a problem? That's, that's a really important thing is where is this requirement coming from? Uh, does it increase security, reliability, survivability, all those things? Or is it just what we call from the good idea fairy? Someone's coming out saying, hey, you know what would be really neat is if you did this thing. Uh, and and because it's neat is not a great idea. That's not a great way, a great reason to do something. Yeah, that's, um, that's funny you put it there. <laughs> I love that, the good idea fairy, because... I think uh, there's some amount of good idea fairy that pops up on uh, on our show from time to time where it's an interesting idea. We we're interested in hearing more about the idea, but then we sit back at the end of that show and go, hmm, is that neat because it's neat or is that neat because it's useful? I don't know. Right. Right. And and it's important to interrogate those things. And so, you know, I might sit down with some of my folks and and have a whiteboard session and say, okay, show me, show me how this improves our network. Show me how this reduces your time without significantly increasing complexity or how it increases our security. And, you know, using the example of VRFs, I can, I can show that uh, path isolating a network using VRFs can increase my security. 
And, you know, and, and drawing out that example a little bit, um, if I put a printer on a printer VLAN, and then I have a user on a user VLAN, and I have a router in front of that, that switch where those two VLANs converge, uh, I haven't actually isolated my printer from my user because they both hit the VLAN, or excuse me, they both hit the router in the same route table, and the printer can still talk to the user, and the user can still talk to the printer. But if I introduce a VRF on that router, and now I take my printer VLAN, dump it into the printer VRF, and build a, a network, a, a path through my network for that printer to be able to talk to, for example, a print server, well, now that makes a lot of sense. And I can, I can see the requirement there where having that VRF actually creates a path-isolated environment so that my printer can't actually talk to my user because I have these VRFs in place and my printer only talks to the print server and my user only talks to the print server in order to, to uh, you know, send a print job. Now, that makes a lot of sense, but I'm going to have to balance that with all the training my folks have received up to now on how to troubleshoot a network, if I introduce a VRF into this network and say, change the troubleshooting command from show IP route to show IP route VRF, whatever, is that going to trip everybody up or is that a logical extension? You know, are, are my folks really going to be able to grasp that? And and without a doubt, there is training involved in such a concept because, again, the default is this global world and you really need to change people's thinking. So, right, that, I get it, that trade-off of is it worth it, uh, as complex as needed but no but no more, you know, and, and keep it simple, stupid, yeah. Right, and and then you, you have to extend to that and say, uh, can I train on this technology for the next 10 years or so? So, you know, just using this VRF concept again, Maybe I make a decision at my unit of 100 people, and I train all of my people on how to use that. And then all those people, as I said earlier, they leave. They go somewhere else. Some get out of the military. Some just move to another duty station. And I get a whole new crop of people in. Usually, it's not all at once. It's individuals leaving at different times. But if I have to train all those people on the concept of VRF, of a VRF, then I've taken on that training and operational debt. If I can institutionalize that training and go back to the schoolhouse where we send all of our people to become basically trained in network engineering and say, introduce this concept to them at, this, at the beginning of the training pipeline. Don't wait for me to have to do it at the very end when they get to this unit. Now that's something I can sustain. But I have to get organizational buy-in from the entire you know, enterprise, really, to say VRFs are the way to go. And that takes political clout, that takes knowledge, that takes force <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and then if there's a cost associated with it, if it's not something simple like a VRF, if there's a new piece of hardware or an additional license for software, now we have to look organizationally and say, how much is that software going to cost in addition to the training and all that kind of stuff? And that kind of gets back to the the last thing that, and it, it truly is the last thing that I look at on this is, does my boss or my higher unit understand the value? Can I articulate why it's really important to, to do this uh, and why it should um, overcome any of the financial or training burdens that it's going to incur? Mm. So 
in the I listen to you go through those, it's actually not particularly different from the kind of questions a commercial or business user would be asking, but perhaps more poignant in the military context. I think so, and I think there's there's a lot of people that will would rather err on the side of being more conservative rather than uh, more progressive in terms of employing new technology. So that's why I think you often see the military as adopting new technology a little bit more slowly. And there's a lot of competitions out there now and a lot of kind of news articles about how do we how do we incorporate new technology faster? How do we innovate? How do we do all these things? And those are important. But when I when you lay it out in those those kinds of questions, what happens when it breaks? Do I have the software or hardware to do it or do I need to buy it? Uh, is there an actual requirement? How do I sustain it? And how do I express the value of this to someone else? That kind of lends itself to conservatism, which is good and bad. So VRFs, for example, I said is relatively new and kind of the, the smaller edge networks in the military. And that's because of this. That's because it, it's, it takes so long to adopt all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that we can't do it. We can't make those decisions. We can't kind of innovate quickly. It means we, we end up um, being a little bit more conservative than, than someone else might be. Well, PC, I, again, as I was observing, I think there are a lot of parallels here between what you're dealing with on the military side and what you're dealing with on the commercial side. But I, I'm curious to know if there were particular lessons learned in the military environment that maybe could be applied to the commercial side, where some thinking you've picked up on the military side, if we were thinking that way on the, the commercial or business side, would be helpful. I, I think there are. And, and these are kind of my personal lessons learned and things that I try and, and talk to my, the people that work for me about, uh, not so much a, you know military-specific things, but things that I've seen in and out of commercial and, and military environments. The first one is we should always ask why. There, that sounds a little bit weird because most people's view of the military is you, you, you get an order and you follow the order. Uh, in the Marine Corps specifically, and in a lot of the other services have adopted this similar paradigm as well, what's most important is what's called the commander's intent. Uh, it's the reason that you're doing something, not necessarily the specific actions of take step one, then step two, then step three. And the theory behind that is if a person understands why they're doing something, they can more effectively deal with the uncertainty that's inevitably going to come around when, when they're actually doing that task. So if, if the intent is to deliver secure communications in a specific place and they get to that specific place and they look around and there's no way to get radio communications out of that specific place, then if that person understands the reason why they're there, they can make the decision to say, I'm going to move to a slightly different place to accomplish the same mission. And you kind of free up that uh, that independent decision making. And in the case of networking and, and uh, you know, IT in general, I think asking why, why did somebody do this? Why did somebody architect it this way? Why did somebody put this here? Also helps to understand the frame of mind that the person who did that thing is was coming from. Uh, it can be a, a learning tool for 
new people. It can be a confirmation tool for, you know, why did you do it this way? Okay, now I understand the whole framework and I'm not going to tell you to do it a different way. So asking why is is, is really important. Uh, another piece is we are prisoners of our own experiences. So if you have had exposure to one set of technology, for example, let's say you've only used EIGRP as a routing protocol. You may know that BGP and OSPF and ISIS and RIP and all these other things are out there. Right. The old, the old adage of if all you've got to hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and just from a personal standpoint, I, I'm a big believer that uh, in order to be a great network engineer, you should also strive to be a great software engineer and system administrator and, and all the way around. Um, because everything these days is really a blend of all three of those disciplines, understanding how servers interact with clients from a software standpoint, from a system standpoint, from a network standpoint, uh, that that goes a long way when you're trying to troubleshoot things. Oh, I strongly, strongly agree with that. The more you know about the applications actually running across your network, and I don't just mean you know using them, but how they work and what's going on at a protocol level underneath, all the way up through uh, layer seven, and then integrating that with user experience, having a full picture of all of that, knowing things like like certificate infrastructure on web servers can really help you resolve some interesting problems sometimes. Again, I, I don't need to mean to steal your thunder, but it's just a <laughs> point I, I resonate with so strongly. I just wanted to emphasize it. Yeah, I, and I think that's, a, that's kind of a long-term goal for people in this field. It, it's not a out-of-the-box, I'm a great network engineer, software engineer, system administrator. Uh, I have a, a bachelor's in computer science and a master's in telecommunications. And neither of those taught all of those, <laughs> those disciplines, right? The computer science folks spent very little time teaching uh, networking at all and no network actual engineering. You know, how do you architect a network? Uh, the telecommunications side of the house, that they didn't do any system administration. There was some scripting and stuff, but it's only through individual effort and even kind of corporate or, or organizational training programs where you start to expose people intentionally or expose yourself intentionally into those disciplines that you, you can really grasp those concepts. Um, an example uh, just recently that happened to me a couple of months ago, we were doing a, an exercise where we actually were able to use a, a wired uh, high bandwidth, low delay uh, circuit. It was a hundred megabit circuit and our throughput from a client, on inside of a tent to a server that was in an enterprise data center somewhere on the east coast uh, was was abysmal it was in the orders of one megabit per second throughput on a hundred megabit per second network link and the initial thought was oh there's too many users on it we need too much bandwidth is being used you know we need to do qos or we need to do some other stuff there as we started to dive into it it turned out that there was a load balancer in between the server and the client and the load balancer had small queue sizes, small buffers uh, configured. And so the TCP windowing uh, was actually not happening. Uh, and so you were getting low throughput because of TCP session uh, construction limitations. And if we were able to increase the buffer sizes on the load balancer, we could show much higher throughput on that TCP session. But that requires 
knowledge of the network, knowledge of the load balancer, knowledge of the server environment, knowledge of how TCP works, mm-hmm. possibly knowledge of, you know, layer five, six, seven. Uh, but it's really starting at layer one and then going all the way up through the OSI model to look at each one with depth of knowledge that's required to really analyze that. Yeah, boy. And uh, <laughs> and, and how do you get there with those uh, those folks? Sure. Um, so I, I've got a couple more points uh, and I'll try and keep them relatively brief. Uh, I think investing in people and then ideas and then tools is the right way to, to approach that. Um, a lot of people in the commercial and the military side see a tool that could deliver them some capability and they think, hey, that's great. That's going to solve all my problems. And where they forget to start is we we have to invest in the people we have or the people that we're trying to to hire first. We have to get the best people on the bus. We have to give them the best opportunities, invest in them. And then through that, we invest in their ideas. When we've brought the right people on the bus and we've got them there, we have to empower them and their ideas to actually take hold. Then after we've kind of done that, we can bring on those additional tools that might might help our, our, our problem and that kind of thing. Yeah, th- I think this is something that the DevOps and the NoOps folks, uh, particularly the younger ones, are sort of missing this. They think software is just going to solve everything. You don't really need people. You can just kind of throw things at cloud infrastructure and magical APIs and software are going to do the rest. And it isn't as simple as that. Thankfully, some of that, is, those notions are being dispelled uh, and the importance of people is being rearticulated. But somewhere in that messaging, uh, some people have lost the understanding that uh, implementing technology successfully, it does involve people before those tools. Yeah. Right. And, and DevOps is, a, I mean, that's a whole nother, you could spend a whole nother podcast episode uh, talking about the, you know, the good and bad of that. But to me, when you look at DevOps or, or even kind of the cloud as a whole, really, you're just shifting the capacity problem and maybe adding some APIs to things, but you still have to understand how a network works. You still have to understand how the systems are administrated you still have to understand the software, even though it's cloaked in this, you don't need to do this. <laughs> you shift this problem onto us. Really, you're just shifting the capacity problem and that's it. So give me some more of our uh, lessons learned from the military for the commercial application. All right. Uh, last couple. Security is really important. Um, and equally as important is having a network that, that operates the way you expect it to or the way you've designed it to. So don't invest in one at the peril of the other. Uh, there's waves that that the military goes through and the commercial sectors go through in security and, and DevOps and some of these other, other topics, but they all coexist. So having a network that is physically and, and cyber secure is as important as having a network that actually operates the way you want it to and meets your requirements, not more or less. And if you start now and you build security in, it's it's a lot easier in the long run than if you bolt it on from the side later. Um, checklists, playbooks, drills, and exercises, tests, they all work to help build experience when things break. Don't wait until it breaks to figure out what to do next. I think one of the best things that the military teaches people is to build muscle memory by actually testing the break, testing the drill of what do you do next. Uh, so that might involve breaking something and then pausing 
and stepping through that thought process with your people and saying, what is, what's going through your mind? Do you have the tools? Do you have the knowledge? Do you have the ideas to step through this problem and, and figuring out those gaps so that the next time when you either do that test or it happens in real life, uh, you're better equipped. Oh, this is another one. I just want to you know, jump up on a soapbox and rant for a bit, but I'll just say I did work in an environment once where we would on a quarterly basis, I think schedule something broken. We worked in an active, active data center environment and had to validate on a very regular basis that yes, indeed, uh, applications would fail over as necessary and we would forcefully break things on a scheduled basis to, and, and that process would show up deficiencies in process, would show up deficiencies in our, how we would handle things, would show up deficiencies in knowledge, would demonstrate that, oh, holy crap, that app ain't working right. What's going on? And, uh, and would uncover problems in a scheduled and controlled way as opposed to something does break and now things are down and we're not really sure why because this isn't what the way it was supposed to work. Exactly. And, you know, there's there's a number of commercial companies out there uh, doing doing some great things. Netflix has got a lot of blog posts uh, about this. They've got a tool, I think it's, if I remember correctly, called Chaos uh, that randomly kills off containers and, and, and you know, breaks things on their, in their environment in order to test, is their environment handling the, those outages or those issues the way it should? Um, and so introducing that into the normal state of business is, is really, really important not just waiting for something to happen. Uh, a personal you know, pet peeve of mine is that I, I think a lot of people steer clear of trying to actually learn how all these protocols work, Ethernet, IP, TCP, UDP. You know, What are the mechanics behind them? really kind of getting in depth? Because that's what's actually making your network uh, work You know, from a user standpoint, not, not just looking at BGP and EIGRP and how do the routing protocols work from a an uh, in infrastructure standpoint, but how about those protocols that are traversing the network that our users are interfacing with? Um, specifically, how do they behave when they're working and how do they behave when they're not working? What does right and wrong look like? And I have to put a plug in here for Wireshark. Uh, I've done some dissector development there and some network monitoring development with libpcap, but Wireshark, I, I tell as many people as I can, is the way to see the magic that's happening on the network. Uh, I think one of the comments that was made in, in one of the previous podcasts was uh, PCAP or it didn't happen, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, this, this stuff happens that we think looks like an architecture map, you know, or topology map in our mind. Oh, my pack is going from here to here to here to here. But unless you've seen that packet on the wire doing what it's supposed to or not doing what it's supposed to, you don't really know what those things look like. And by the way, the folks that have done some initial captures with Wireshark, maybe the first time you ever fired it up and you just got kind of overwhelmed with packet data and didn't know what to do with it all. Once you get more comfortable with the tool, you can very quickly isolate conversations. And that that is a key. You need, if you're trying to learn protocol behavior, you need to isolate a specific conversation and follow it through from beginning to end, then things make sense. If you're just staring at this ocean of a thousand different conversations that are going on and broadcasts coming in and, and so on, you will be overwhelmed. But that ability within Wireshark to isolate a specific conversation and then study that, that that's where learning begins. Exactly. And, and it's only, you know, it's kind of a never ending topic. Once you learn kind of the basics, then you get into, well, how does voice over IP work? 
and what are the signaling protocols and what are the audio protocols that are involved and and what are the source and destination how do they get connected you know and, and that's really kind of magic that that takes a lot of depth to get there but it's really important um and then the last comment is documentation is critical uh since in the military we we change over uh personnel and specific jobs every two to three years documentation is is really important to understand why something was done on the network why did i put this router here why did i uh, use this protocol instead of another protocol is really important. I, I would go out on a limb and say, we're still not doing a great job at that. And I would even throw something out there to the vendors and say the vendor tooling for architecting a network and then translating that architecture into a monitoring tool that can monitor the behavior of the network and look at it holistically and say, is it operating the way I architected it? It's just not there yet. Um, you've got a lot of great visualization stuff from packet design and, and live action and thousand eyes. Um, but the tie, the tie in from architecting something to operating it, being able to transition back and forth in that, in, in that planning environment and the operating environment, it's just not there. So, and, so just, just a quick comment that the intent based networking folks were, are getting all, all flustered <laughs> and puffing their chest right now. So uh, you know, maybe there is some advancement being made with uh, folks like Abstra and what some some of what Cisco's doing with the tent based. Maybe that helps get us there. Because certainly, I've seen in product demos that is the idea behind that. You design something, and then to close the loop, you make sure that it's operating as designed, as intended. So, uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm with you, man. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I hope it. I hope it gets better. Uh, you know, for for the. 20 years that I've been doing this, uh, it hasn't been there. And that's that's a critical component that, you know, it ends up being you draw something in Visio, you print it out, you hand it to somebody, and hopefully that diagram has everything on it that, that you need to, to capture the intent behind why you did certain things. But, but just to underscore your major point, documentation is critical because yep. it provides that context. And that goes back to an earlier point you made about asking why. If you understand why, well, documentation that's well done can help someone who's new to an environment understand why if you've written it exactly. in that proper way. Well, PC, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and uh, it might be fun to do just a nerd show on like SATCOM or uh, terrestrial uh, microwave and related radio wave technologies just to dive into how they work and what their different use cases are. There's all different kinds of protocols out there and so on, but it's a super corner case. And of course we didn't have time to get into that today, but Hey, are you, uh, you social, do you blog or on Twitter or anything where people could follow you or reach out to you if they had any questions or comments? I, I don't, uh, I don't blog. That's something I've been, I've been trying to, to set an intent for this year to do, and I haven't gotten into it yet. But uh, if, if anybody has any questions or wants some more information, they can reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn. And I think that is in the show notes. Uh, but it's LinkedIn PC Drew. Excellent. Well, again, thanks for the time. And, and you didn't know when you emailed us, you were raising your hand. So uh, <laughs> thanks for raising your hand and being a guest on 
packet pushers today. And uh, yeah, you just heard uh, PC mention the show notes and you can find those on packetpushers.net. And there's a lot of other stuff there that you can discover. We have over a thousand other episodes from across our podcast network for networking and infrastructure professionals. Our community blog is there. Our news feeds are there, et cetera. There is a lot there. So if all you do is consume packet pushers through your podcatcher, you are missing a lot if you don't actually visit packetpushers.net. We're on the socials on Twitter and LinkedIn uh, at Packet Pushers. You can find us that way. Take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that. And uh, hey, we've launched a new site. Uh, we have a membership site now, ignition.packetpushers.net. You can become a member there. That helps support us and support the show. We'd appreciate that. And uh, what you get in exchange is unique content that we're not publishing anywhere else. It's just for you folks. There's no sponsored content uh, for the premium tier of Ignition, just stuff that uh, Greg and Drew and I are making for you. Last but not least, Remember that too much networking would never be enough.